we had a window that I knew we needed to seize because it was not impossible to believe that that window would close. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. For the last eight years, a decrepit old oil tanker off the coast of Yemen has been like a ticking time bomb, threatening to unleash unprecedented disaster in the Red Sea. The 47-year-old tanker, the FSO Safar, was fraying and decaying and filled with one million barrels of oil. For reference, this is about four times the amount that the Exxon Valdez spilled in 1989. The UN estimated that a spill from the SFO software would cause an ecological, environmental, and humanitarian disaster across the Red Sea region, destroying pristine reefs and imperiling coastal fishing communities in Yemen, Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, and beyond. It would take 25 years for fish stocks to replenish. The cleanup cost alone would be $20 billion. But today's episode is about how that disaster was averted. On Friday, August 11th, the United Nations announced that the FSO Safar's 1 million barrels of oil had been offloaded. This was the culmination of a massive political, diplomatic, and logistical undertaking. And my guest today is the person who was at the center of it all, the UN's top official in Yemen, David Gressley. David Gressley is an assistant UN Secretary General with whom I spoke from Aden just hours after the last oil had been pumped out of the SFO Safar. We kick off discussing the circumstances in which the oil had become trapped in the old vessel, which is very much part of the story of Yemen's civil war. The Houthi rebel group are the de facto authorities of the port off which the Safar is moored, and David Gressley discusses the delicate diplomacy required to secure their consent for this operation. He then describes how he and his UN colleagues devised and executed a plan to remove the oil from the SFO suffer and avert a calamity in the Red Sea. Needless to say, the United Nations was not designed to remove oil from a leaky tanker in the midst of a civil war, but that is what happened, largely due to the ingenuity of David Gressley and his colleagues. So this is a good news story of a major crisis prevented. If you're new to the show, welcome. Please visit globaldispatches.org. From there, you can get in touch with me if you'd like to request a topic I should cover or a person I should interview. I love hearing from you. This is a podcast for the international affairs community and global news aficionados. And so I aim to please. And if you've not already done so, please be sure to sign up for the newsletter version of Global Dispatches, again, at globaldispatches.org. Now, here is my conversation with United Nations Assistant Secretary General and top UN official in Yemen, David Gressley.
before we get into the details of the operation to offload the oil from the tanker, can you just briefly explain how it is that the FSO suffer became stranded in the Red Sea in the first place? Well, I think it's important to note that the suffer is a storage vessel for oil. It was actually placed there in 1988. It was a super tanker built by the Japanese in 1976, back in the era, in fact, of giant super tankers for carrying oil. And so when it reached the end of its commercial life for moving oil around the planet, it was converted into an oil storage vessel. That's why it's called an FSO. It's a floating storage and offloading vessel. And it was placed in the port of Hudeda to receive oil that was piped from the Safar oil fields east of Mara. That's why it's called Safar, in fact. It's named after the oil fields of the oil that it carries. And that pipeline runs over a thousand kilometers from east to west to the port of Fudeda, and then underwater for a few kilometers to where the FSO software is currently anchored today. And so it's anchored to the pipeline, and the pipeline runs straight into the vessel to store the oil. So it's been there for a long time doing just that. And the way it worked is that vessels would come to pick up the oil to transport it for selling whoever was purchasing the oil wanted it to go. So when the war broke out, it had actually 1.1 million barrels of oil waiting to be picked up. We're fortunate because the capacity of the FSO Sapphire is 3 million barrels. So the potential disaster could have been three times larger than it actually was. As it was, it would have been the fifth largest oil spill in history and still four times larger than the Exxon Valdez. So it wasn't like it was stuck there. It was planned to be there. But the fact is, with the war, it became inaccessible. There was, for many years, a struggle for the control of the city and port of Hudeda, and access because of security became a problem. Then after the Sana authorities took full control of Hudeda, they limited access coming in. And finally, there was no money for maintenance over particularly the last six, seven years. So the vessel, which was very old to begin with, started to rapidly decay. And that's why we have the problem that we had to confront today. And so it had been described for a long time, and and I've been covering this and done episodes on this very issue as a ticking time bomb. What might have happened in the event of an oil spill? And what was the threat that the FSO suffer posed to the Red Sea and coastal communities? Well, let me start off by describing what nearly happened in September 2020. So any vessel of that size will have inlets so that water comes in. They pull that water in to provide ballast or whatever might be required. And there are a number of pipes that move that around to different chambers to get the right ballast in place. Unfortunately, in 2020, those became highly corroded and they started to leak massively, in fact. And could have, according to the people I've talked to locally, that vessel could have sunk within a period of two to three days at that point in time. So we could have had a disaster in 2020 that we'd be talking about today of the magnitude that you've described. Now, what happened is that they locally, with whatever they had, they tried to repair the internal piping that was so heavily corroded, which they did, but they determined that that was not really going to hold very well. And so they ended up covering up all of the inlets that was on that side of the vessel. Eight massive plates were welded in place 
welded and bolted, in fact, sealed to stop water from going in where those pumps had been. So that stopped and stabilized the software long enough for the rest of us to catch up and try to do the work that we just completed. And by locally, you mean the de facto Houthi authorities? Yes. I mean, it was people who did it were people who were doing this kind of work before the war started, but it was under Houthi leadership, of course. But the divers, the crew members, the Coast Guard, these are all people who were doing this kind of work prior to the conflict. They know the vessel quite well. And actually, we've relied on their expertise as well as we do our own work on the salvage side. So they knew what needed to be done, and they did what they had to do to keep it afloat. And yet it still remained a very precarious situation, given just the age and the decaying and the fraying of the tanker and the challenges that have already been experienced, as you just described. But in order to mount this really massive logistical operation, you know, my understanding is first you needed to overcome some key diplomatic hurdles in terms of you know, negotiating between and with the de facto Houthi authorities that control, you know, the port of Hodaida. What were some of the assurances or diplomatic challenges you needed to overcome in order to get this operation underway? I think the main concern we faced was the perception of the DFA and the de facto authorities, whether we were trustworthy or not. So it was a giant exercise in building confidence and, and trust through transparency uh, in particular. But that took time, and it took a lot of work, discussions to do that. But likewise, there was a lot of skepticism on the outside on whether the de facto authorities would actually carry through on it. It was a combination of negotiations, but also reassurance to the parties concerned that, indeed, everybody was going to adhere to their part of the bargain. So it was a continuous negotiation, actually, right up until the very, very last day. There were issues of concern that needed to be negotiated on both sides. There were some sensitive issues. There were security issues. There were, are you really going to deliver this or not? What's the future going to bring? So there were numerous questions that would come up. We'd work through uh, solutions. Then someone else would look at it a little bit differently and ask the same questions again. And so it was a very narrow path that we had to follow because the demands on us were often contradictory. Demands by one party or the other could be quite contradictory. We had to find elegant solutions to move forward, trying to convince member states in particular to contribute to this. They wanted assurances that the money would actually be used, that the de facto authorities really would carry through with the work. And that took time. And diplomacy at that level as well, bringing the private sector in the same. In fact, I've spoken to many now recently who said that they contributed not so much because they thought we would succeed, but because they thought at least they would be showing that they were trying to solve a problem. And they remained skeptical until the very end, until we could prove that we could actually do it. Well, tell me the story of success. This is like a good news story, and it's worth emphasizing that this is the story of a disaster averted. So can you just maybe walk me through the hurdles that needed to be cleared logistically, technically, in order to offload this oil? I mean, I take it the UN had to buy a ship. It had to get proper insurance coverage and work with a number of technical experts in order to get this done. So tell me, what happened? How did this operation succeed? Well, the first 
element, once we had the basic political agreements, was to get the funding. And then with that funding, we were then able to start procuring expertise that the UN does not normally have. Because we don't normally buy a very large crude carrier, a VLCC. You know, we paid $55 million for this crude carrier. So it's not a small procurement item. Nor did we have the maritime expertise, though the International Maritime Organization did a great deal of of technical support for us. We, We drew on different parts of the UN system to do that. They actually did a great job for us, as did the World Food Program. I don't think we would have succeeded buying the VLCC without their logistical knowledge, and we called upon that. And they pointed us in the right direction where we could procure a VLCC that was actually in dry dock and ready to be purchased and shipped. So it worked really very quickly. But we also went externally with maritime lawyers, insurance brokers, also brokers for vessels and so forth. We really had to bring a lot on board in order to understand what we needed to do to pull this off. And it was a constant discovery for all of us. So how does one actually, having pulled all of these resources together, gathered this kind of team of public sector, private sector organizations, how does one actually suck oil out of a tanker and into another vessel in the middle of the Red Sea? How did this work? Well, actually pretty easy. Just put a pump on one side and and a hose that links it to the other side. That was actually the easy part. They were massive pumps, of course. It only took really two weeks to get the bulk of the oil out. And the salvage team knows exactly what they're doing. They worked uh, extremely efficiently. What was more problematic actually was preparing the FSO software for the transfer because all of its systems were broken down. The engine didn't work and couldn't be repaired. The system of inert gases had broken down. That's what keeps things from exploding. And other piping systems were all broken down. They spent a good bit of time just preparing the vessel to be safe and effective for the transfer. So the vessel has been emptied of oil. It's now presumably sitting in that other vessel. And this is something like 1 million barrels. That's a lot of oil and a lot of money as well. What do you know thus far about who is going to control that oil now that it's been offloaded? Well, control and ownership can be two different things. The control is by the authorities locally. The ownership is actually mixed, and we've gone through to try to review legally who does own the oil. Basically, it's owned by three parastatal companies from the government of Yemen, about 90% of the oil between the three, and then about less than 10% would be with private companies. So it's mixed, the ownership, which is one of the complicating factors. So if you want to sell the oil, you need to deal with all the owners about how to sell the oil as well as the controlling authority that controls the oil. So that was one reason we went to the solution that we put forward now, which is to quickly get the oil into another vessel to hold it there long enough for the legal ownership, controlling issues to be resolved, because that could take many, many months, if not years. So we've secured the oil for now, long enough for for these issues to be resolved, but they still do need to be resolved. So that's interesting. So the strategy, the apparently successful strategy was, let's just address the acute problem, get the oil off the tanker, then figure out this very complicated political and legal challenge of who might benefit from the sale of this oil. Kick that can down the road a bit. Yeah, kick it down, but not kick it down in the same way. 
put the problem down the road a bit, but secure the oil in a very good way so that it's not an imminent problem in the next few years. So we have the time to work out a solution. You referenced earlier this acute emergency in 2020 in which local experts were able to handle this potential emergency at the safer back in 2020. You know, here we are in, in 2023, the broader political context in Yemen is vastly different now than it was back then. I think it's fair to say that the conflict today is at a far reduced level than it was back then and there has been diplomatic progress in recent months and years towards a reduction of violence and potentially even a cessation of hostilities and and a ceasefire down the road. To what extent has this sort of rapprochement, if you will, contributed to the broader diplomatic environment in which you were able to secure this deal around the FSO Sefer? Well, it could be the other way around, in fact, because the original agreement was reached back in March 2022, before the truce was even announced. I would like to believe that that kind of an agreement was conducive to a larger agreement that was signed thereafter. So it shows you that even small steps like this can help momentum to go carry things forward. We're in a situation now, it's certainly better. There's no airstrikes going on at this point in time. The port of Hudeda is essentially open to all non-sanctioned commodities, and sanctioned commodities are basically war material. And so it's helping the economy, particularly in the north, to come back to a certain extent. But it's also a no war, no peace situation. And so one had to be concerned that a return to war was not out of the question. And so partly what to answer your question, we had a window that I knew we needed to seize because it was not impossible to believe that that window would close. I'm hoping the action of doing this will help the momentum towards the other option, which is peace, but we need to be prepared for both paths to be taken. There's no war, no peace never endures. One path or the other will ultimately be taken. So hopefully we can contribute to a more positive one through the success of this project. Lastly, what's next for the saga of the FSO software itself? I take it it still is moored in the Red Sea and will be for some time? What we intended to do, and we're working out the details on that, is to detach it from the pipeline and tow it away to a place where we can do the final cleaning. We're not going to be able to do a complete cleaning in situ and then ultimately have it scrapped. So it actually presents no threat to the Red Sea. It's not really viable as a vessel anymore. It's it's a great vessel. It's a monster. But the systems are old. The original systems didn't actually match modern environmental standards anyway. So it's not really usable for anything at this point in time. So the the only logical thing is to have it scrapped at at this point. So that's what we'll work on next. It needs to be detached anyway in order to attach the uh, convoy that will now sit on top of the pipeline. And that's where we attach the empty Yemen through long cables, basically. It's tethered to it unlike the steel mount that the FSO software uses to mount onto the pipeline. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations on seeing this through. Thank you for your time.
Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <music>